you have you have security identity and belonging in Christ outside of him zilch nada nothing just nothing your security is in who he is in his name and his nature and his jealous possession of you God has provided a safe place for you where you can develop into the person he sees it's his name and his nature but you have to stay there he has provided a place for you to grow and make mistakes as we do but it's all taken care of your part is to enjoy the development process and rejoice in him during all the vicissitudes of life his the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is your security he will establish your identity and you belong to him therefore what you think about God is the single most important thing in your life take a few moments right now to write down exactly what you think about God make a list then make a second list of improvements to the first list just exactly how do you know him and who do you know him as for you and has that changed the way that you live your life has it changed the way you live beloved these are questions you can't afford not to ask yourself they're key to your personal security identity and belonging because what you think about God will drive everything you do and everything you think about it will drive what you believe about who you are and how you perceive yourself and those around you a definition of arrogance you know is not thinking a lot of yourself but rather thinking too little of others they will suddenly have a value in your sight that is inestimable you are developing the mind of Christ nothing will be impossible for you and no cost too great to pay to know the love of God for you which passes understanding again reading from the message Ephesians 3 14 to 21 my response is to get down on my knees before the father this magnificent father who parcels out all heaven and earth I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit not a brute strength but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in and I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love reach out and experience the breadth test its length plumb the depths rise to the heights live full lives full in the fullness of God God can do anything you know far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams he does it not by pushing us around but by working within us his spirit deeply and gently within us glory to God in the church 
Glory to God in the Messiah, in Jesus. Glory all down the generations. Glory through all millennia. Oh, yes. The risen life. A life of transformation and power. It's a life that can't be starved. It's a life that breaks out in fullness and abundance, not measure. It's a life that can't be starved because it feeds other people. It is a life of continuous revelation because Jesus is the light of the world. You need to get it. This is your life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. You have a totally new DNA. You are no longer earthbound, you are heavenbound. You are no longer a citizen of this country, but a heavenly one. You no longer see things from an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one. You are totally alive and you are totally free. So what's holding you? Many of us are like hot air balloons, still tethered when the life in us wants to rise to the heavenly places. Just what is tethering you to the earth right now? Those of you who heard last month's teaching may remember my asking you to consider your life on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the most alive and I asked you where you thought you fitted. A little bit of life, some life, much life or abundant life. Life more abundantly is relative for each of us. Being alive is more than just breathing. Jesus was the only one who was fully alive when he walked this earth. The glory of God is man fully alive. You may remember my quoting some time ago from the book Waking the Dead. In it, John Eldridge quotes from The Perfect Storm. When Spillane treats injured seamen offshore, one of the first things he evaluates is their degree of consciousness. The highest level, known as alert and oriented times four, describes almost everyone in an everyday situation. They know who they are, where they are, what time it is and what's just happened. If someone suffers a blow to the head, the first thing they lose is recent events, alert and oriented times three, and the last thing they lose is their identity. A person who has lost all levels of consciousness right down to their identity is said to be alert and oriented, time zero. Just exactly where are you on Spillane's scale? The glory of God is man fully alive. The risen life, the abundant life is ours, but it takes courage to follow Jesus. Christ didn't die for an idea. He died for a person. He died for you. You are central to his plan. He came to give you back your heart and to set you free. To enchain your heart forever to his in love overflowing with life. We are meant to have rivers of living water flowing from us, not just a drip. Jesus provided abundant life for us. It is part of our inheritance 
and being free is relative too. Some people are just barely free, just over the line. They know that Jesus is their saviour, that they are not of the world, they have their ticket, and that's where it stops for them. It's rather like getting married and the husband says on your wedding day, that ring on your finger, dear, tells you that I'll look after you in your old age. No bride wants to hear that. She wants to know about the years in between. There is a realm in the spirit where the sun sets you free and you are free indeed. To be fully alive and free requires that we both seek the truth and live the truth because the truth is a person. The truth is mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the person of Christ. God extends mercy to us in order that we discover his nature towards us whilst he changes us. He does not beat us up. Grace is always available. Mercy and love are yours. He's not looking with a critical eye upon you. He's looking at what doesn't resemble Jesus. And that is the area he will want to kiss next. Process is delightful depending on your attitude, how you approach it. Transformation is delightful, change is delightful, you are being made into his image, his character is altogether lovely. He is full of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Why wouldn't you want to be like that? You can approach it negatively, fearing change, holding on to your old habits as though they had some merit, fearing where his loving touch is going to land next. You're just silly. Whatever he asks of you, he'll give you. If he's asking you to be holy, he will give you his holiness. Everything he wants from you, he first gives you. He loves you. There is no fear in love. Why are you fearful of his touch? Who is God for you? Just exactly who is he? What God have you got for yourself? A self-made one? Your idea? Is it time you had a change of mind? Is it time you changed your confession? I'm in Christ, he is in me, and I'm going to stay connected to the source of life. I'm rooted I'm grounded and I'm going to stay where he's placed me, here, connected by that root system, in all the love, affection, laughter and life that flows out of heaven. What if part of what you're supposed to display on earth is the happiness of God, his laughter, his joy, his tranquility? What if? Did you know he's happy? Or do you have a doleful God, a bit like Eeyore, always looking miserable and depressed, expecting someone to pull his tail off, permanently disappointed with life, people and circumstances, depressed? Think again, beloved, think again. The risen life is about a life poured out. Again, Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. He was making reference to the Old Testament offerings, but he was also saying, my life is counted as nothing unless it's poured out for you. He was following the Master's footsteps. 
Philippians 1, 21-24. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labour for me and I don't know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. To be a true disciple of Christ will cost you. To live the risen life will cost you. The cross is still not an option. But beyond it is the risen life, resurrection life and power. You don't stay on the cross, you rise. There are no casual friends in the kingdom. It will cost you all you have, all your hopes, your ambitions, your dreams, laid on that altar and poof, burned up. That's why Jesus said, whoever sits down to build needs to count the cost. Luke 14, 25 to 34 in the message. Headed up, figure the cost, figure the cost. One day when a large group of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and told them, Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Is there anyone here who planning to build a new house doesn't sit down and figure the costs so you'll know if you can complete it? If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. He started something but he couldn't finish it. Or can you imagine a king going into battle against another king without first deciding whether it is possible with his 10,000 troops to face the 20,000 troops of the other? And if he decides he can't, won't he send an emissary and work out a truce? Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Salt is excellent, but if the salt goes flat, it's useless, good for nothing. Are you listening to this, really listening? Jesus here talks to a large group of people and he lays it on the line. There's a cost, folks. Still want to come? Are you listening to this, really listening? How many of us are really open to abundance? To be open to abundance means we must also be prepared to give away all that we have because none of it matters anyway, we can always get more if we need it. What if the devil has got us so afraid of lack we're trapped in a never-ending cycle of need? What if the thought of being open-handed fills us with fear and dismay? What if we are trading our inheritance day in day out for the kind of security the world is seeking after and we don't even recognize what we're doing. 
To be open to abundance means we must first be sold out to God himself for his purposes, whatever they may be, and whatever the cost and wherever they may take us. And what if, what if I've just described the church in this country? Matthew 6, 33 in the Amplified. But seek, aim at and strive after. First of all, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right, then all these things taken together will be given you besides. We looked last time at Ananias and Sapphira. Their problem was that they wanted to give, but they also wanted everyone to know, so they got some glory out of it. And they wanted to keep enough to look after themselves. They were half-hearted, not whole-hearted in their discipleship. As a result, they lied to the Holy Spirit and the rest is history. We know they didn't lose their salvation. They lost their inheritance. And the loss of their inheritance didn't mean the loss of salvation because salvation and inheritance are two completely different things. They did not live to inherit and they didn't live long enough to store up eternal rewards. As we begin to mature in the Lord, understanding what affects or injures our inheritance and reward helps us on our journey. It helps us to see how the different circumstances he places in our lives and our choices in those circumstances directly affect our ability to inherit and our eternal reward. There is much spoken about inheritance in the Bible. We are his inheritance and he's ours. When you inherit something, you don't work for it. It comes to you as a gift. We have a huge inheritance in Christ. The father in the story of the prodigal son says to the son at home, Son, everything I have is yours. Luke fifteen, thirty-one to 32 the message. His father said, Son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. Our Heavenly Father says the same. Son, everything I have is yours. The elder brother in the parable had an attitude problem. He suffered from resentment. This son of yours... I walk, work all the time and you never give me. Everything was there in his hand, but he didn't have eyes to see it. And he probably died a miserable old man still grumbling and complaining about his lot while living off the fat of the land in his father's house. He had an eyesight problem. Do you? Do you see things in distortion, believing that everyone else has a better deal than you do? that somehow you drew the short straw. Beloved, you need to visit the divine optician for a change of specs. Beloved, you've got a poverty spirit. And a poverty spirit can't receive. Everything I have is yours. It's been given. You need to receive. You need to step into your inheritance by faith. You do it 
it's there, it's yours. The risen life is not only possible, it's a certainty, it's yours. Only you can prevent you from stepping into everything that Christ won for you on the cross. God has completely child-proofed his own. By that I mean he's built into his plan. Every conceivable mistake we could make and he's made provision for them. To stumble into a problem to make some kind of mistake or miss the way for one reason or another is not something that jeopardises our inheritance. That's part of your process. God says have a mistake on me. What he will not overlook or ignore or allow eventually are conscious choices practices or willful actions we spoke about them earlier motivated by resentment bitterness and unforgiveness where we deliberately go into excess in any area of our lives or deliberate disobedience if these things are willfully pursued over a period of time it will eventually lift his hand of protection and things will start to go extremely pear-shaped. I have seen it, beloved. I have first-hand experience of it. A dear one said to me recently, God warned me last year, if I didn't get control of my eating, his hand would lift. It did. And recently the person concerned had several bouts of severe pain leading to an operation to have a gallbladder removed. This followed many, many unheeded warnings. Extensions of time and more warnings. God is good. But sometimes discipline, chastisement must come as part of his great love for us. And who's to blame for this? We are. We refused to heed. We refused to obey. Choices. What am I saying? Beloved, you can lose your inheritance because of uncontrolled desires. Willful choices to continue on the same road. Mark that these choices are both willful and deliberate. And the result is not the loss of salvation, but loss of inheritance. God doesn't give his work out to hired hands. He only ever deals with us as family. As the firstborn son, God poured everything he had into Jesus, and he gave him the nations as an inheritance, and the ends of the earth as his possession. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. After having fulfilled his father's purpose, Jesus turned to the early church and said, I have come into my inheritance. Now I want you to come into yours. Go into all the nations and disciple them. He sends his family out to do the work. In Christ, the nations are our inheritance. 
We are the labourers in his vineyard, and we are his family here on earth. We are his body on the earth, the head has risen. Our inheritance comes to us as we do what he asks us to do. As the Lord of the harvest is his to direct us into his work, not ours to tell him what we think needs doing. Obedience is what causes us to inherit. If we attempt to choose our own inheritance, we stand the risk of missing his high calling for us. When we let the Lord choose our inheritance for us, he will reveal the function and calling he intends for our lives. He knows how easy it is for us to get wrapped up in our own little world and miss the bigger picture of his purposes for us. Beloved, I want to come into my inheritance. I am not settling for a 30% return or a 60% return. I want a hundredfold return to give to him on that day. So whatever prophetic words you have over your life will not come automatically. It is by your choices that you come into the fullness of your inheritance. God has always planned good things for his people. He has always planned to bring them into the promised land. For Israel the land is physical. For us it is a spiritual land of good things which includes provision in areas um, of personal things but it's provision in areas of personal spiritual victory regaining our inner territory defeat over ourselves defeat over the enemy material sufficiency mental and emotional health, physical strength and well-being, spiritual growth and fruitfulness and usefulness in order that we may do that which he has purposed for us to do. All these are part of our inheritance but the fullness is conditional upon obedience. These are the blessings upon us for obedience. His love of us is never in question. He will never change the way he feels about us. But there are conditions to coming into our inheritance, to walking fully into the risen life. And finally, something else for you to ponder on. Giving or receiving? What if our real power in this life is not so much about learning to receive but it is actually about learning how to give in order that we may receive abundance in terms of the depth, height, length and width of the love of God, the deeper things of the Spirit. All these things will be added. Provision is guaranteed if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6:33. It's a promise and it's yours. What if the goal of the Holy Spirit is for us to receive and remain within a life and a love that is so vast our mind doesn't have the capacity to get hold of it? 
that the gospel is indeed too good to be true so that we hardly dare believe it. What if we're actually shopping at the co-op and God wants us shopping at Harrods? We live our lives somewhere between mediocrity and brilliance, somewhere between dullness and astonishment. Have a look at the last words in the book of Acts. Paul says, your hearts have become dull. You've lost your shine. What if a greatest problem in the church right now is that we have lost our ability to be amazed and astonished at who God is? So we cannot portray that to anyone else. We seem to have lost something along the way somewhere. So what's the sum of all this? Simply put, that we should desire to love what he loves and hate what he hates and come into our inheritance in all things. The older we get in the Lord, he doesn't measure time, he measures growth. The more serious are his requirements of us. We must grow up if we are to come into our inheritance in the way he desires. We are going to have to make a conscious, non-emotional decision to trust God and to please him, no matter what. We may wish it could be otherwise, but there it is. Jesus said, not my will, but yours, because he wanted to please his Father. And it pleased the Father to bruise him, that we might be set free. We'll have a deeper look at our inheritance and rewards next time when we explore the challenge and what it means to be mature in our relationships one with another. Until then, be blessed, keep focused, stay in that place of, of intimacy and abide in the vine. God bless you all and thank you so much for listening.